Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the BibleQuestions.org podcast. My name is Jeff, one of your co-hosts, and uh, with me today is Brian. Looking forward to today's session. Brian, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a little while since we've talked about you know Bible questions that have been submitted, so looking forward to, to this today. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So our BibleQuestions.org website, of course, being a website on the internet 24-7, we get submitted questions from everywhere <laughs> around the planet, you know, different people, different countries, different cultures. And the variety of questions is absolutely staggering. I mean, if it's in any way related to God or the Bible or Christianity or sometimes even other world religions, you know, we get those kinds of questions. And uh, currently we're seeing yeah, maybe 20 a week, give or take. Um, and certainly in the past we've seen and over over the years, you know, that that accumulates to thousands and thousands of questions. So what Brian and I like to do from time to time is kind of give our listeners kind of a little bit of insight into some of the questions we get. Um, notably, I think, because often a question that one person may have, you know, often others have the same or, or similar question. And so what Brian and I have done is we've gone over back over the last, you know, month, month and a half, two months, and gathered some recently submitted questions. And we'd like to kind of go over those today to give our audience, again, some insight into some of the, a few, just a sampling uh, of the very many and diverse questions that we do get. And also knowing at the same time, as we answer those questions, maybe we're answering some questions you might have. And as always, we will also provide, as we give some answers, references back to the website for additional study. Brian, any other thoughts before uh, we put you on the spot for the first question? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at the variety of questions that we get. As you touched on, there's, you know, popular or common questions that we often get. But there's also, I find, you know, kind of trends of questions. Like, for instance, with COVID the last year, we've been getting more end of the world or is this a sign or, you know, worries, right, about COVID and, and so forth. So as you are the administrator of these questions, Jeff, I'm sure you see that as well, right? Kind of how it, it, if there's civil unrest or whatever might be going on in the world, uh, a lot of times those questions will mirror those events. They do, uh, indeed. And, you know, to your point, yes, we've seen some with COVID, um, at least here within the United States, if there is a uh, school shooting or one of these similar kinds of events, we get those kinds of questions about, you know, why does God permit, you know, suffering and, you know, bad things happening, et cetera. And so uh, certainly there are a lot of more uh, quote unquote related to uh, current events, so to speak. So for our uh, first round of questions, and actually, Brian, it, it looks like there's a two that are very closely related for, from two different people. Uh, Mona writes in, if God does not interfere in the will of man, if we choose to sin according to the lust of our flesh, how can we stop doing it? How can we make God choose us for his will? And a related uh, question from Sarah 
She writes in, I've known Christ for almost 16 years. I constantly sin, fall into temptation. I read the Bible passages about freedom from sin, but never seem to be able to apply it to myself. I go back and forth on my walk. What should I do besides pray? So I think both of these are kind of related to us and our freedom of choice and us choosing to sin and wanting to try and avoid that. But, you know, people looking for, you know, practical advice on how to, you know, steer away from sin for a closer walk with God. So, Brian, how would you uh, start to answer those? Yeah, I like your summary of it because we, they really do want to stop sinning, which is encouraging. You know, they recognize, you know, hey, I should be doing better, (laughs) you know. So really kind of at a fundamental level, anytime that I talk to people or we get these kinds of questions, I always like to convey what the Bible says, of course, and that is, you know, it really kind of starts with learning, applying, and focusing. And the focus part is so important, you know, focusing on the spiritual principles from God's word. And that would include putting aside worldly behaviors. And so, you know, we've had a few podcasts that we recorded over the last year that are really helpful in this area. So we had a podcast, Jeff, we talked about adding the fruit of the spirit and uh, a second one on removing the works of the flesh. So for our listeners, I'll just give you the section of scripture here. Uh, You can certainly read that on your own. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 25, talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And then, as I mentioned, we uh, if you go back and look at the list of podcasts that we have, uh, we had episodes 28 and 29 that, once again, talked about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So I highly encourage you to do that because, like, with all of our podcasts, it's so important for us to give you the scriptures that talk about that and then encourage you to go and look at that and learn. The other thing that it's so important to do if we want to stop sinning is is really to be diligent to become more spiritually mature. One of the things, Jeff, I've observed over the years is, is unfortunately, there are a large number of people that understand that they should be baptized for their forgiveness of sins, and they become baptized, and now they're quote-unquote saved, and then it kind of stops there. And like anything else in our life, if, if we, we don't continue to grow, if we don't become more mature, then... We're, we're going to fall, right? We're going to certainly go, maybe go back to these worldly attributes that we're trying to put off. So over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, uh, our listeners can take a look at that, where Peter spends a good amount of time talking about the importance of adding to our faith. And along that line, uh, we had a recorded a series of studies with Alan Hitchin, who's an evangelist that's written on this extensively. And so if you look at episodes 40 through 48, you'll be able to listen to this study series. He really did an excellent job. Highly recommend that. And on our website, you can actually download this Adding to Your Faith guide that Alan put together. Very good material. Encourage everybody to do that. So, you know, God wants us to walk in these spiritual qualities. And we have a nice promise from the Holy Spirit that if we continue to walk, if we continue to let God's word dwell within us, and we grow and add to our faith, uh, then then we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So when Mona asks, you know, how can we stop committing sin? And Sarah asks, you know, what should I do besides pray? 
Well, the answer is really, you know, to create a cycle of studying and applying and strengthening our spirit. And when we consistently go through this cycle and develop a pattern of righteousness, it becomes easier to be righteous and we will not want to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, in addition to that, you know, we couple this with our love for the Lord and our desire to be pleasing to him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, it, you know, it further strengthens us against sin when we couple it with our love for the Lord. And then finally, you know, when we're focused on doing the good works that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that God has given us to do, then, you know, we'll minimize and eventually eliminate the desire to sin. Now, that's not to say we'll never have a desire to sin. We're, we're humans. We are tempted. But the reality is the more spiritually strong that you are, the less sin is desirable and actually becomes repulsive and something that we don't want to do. So anyhow, th those are my thoughts on that one, Jeff. Well, and I think you made a good point as you kind of was starting to wrap that up because, you know, some people might assert that they can be perfect. They can be sinless, uh, that the, they don't need to worry about sin anymore. They don't need to worry about temptation anymore. You know, they have quote unquote arrived. But we see that's clearly not the case. Uh, for instance, in First John, uh, near the end of the first chapter and on into the second chapter of First John, you know, John makes it very clear uh, that he's uh, the Holy Spirit through John uh, that talks about, you know, this is a need to uh, walk. It's an ongoing thing. Uh, that if we say we have no sin, and this is verse 8 of chapter 1 of First John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. But between those two verses is the pivotal verse, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, since we're not perfect, you know, that's kind of an inevitable thing. But what do we do when, when we okay, fine. or do we say, oh, I'm totally crushed? No, there's something in between those two extremes. And it's recognizing that, yes, indeed, from time to time that does happen and, and we'll keep striving to avoid uh, that we'll can uh, walk in the light of God's word like you were referring to earlier. And that when we do sin, that we have, we're you know humble, we acknowledge it, we're repentant, we confess our sins, so to speak, we, metaphorically, we pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off, uh, and we get back in the race. Exactly. <laughs> so and when I say we pick ourselves up, you know, obviously a lot of it is dependent on us and us coming to a sense of repentance. But as you're alluding to, you know, some of that is also encouragement from fellow Christians, reading the Bible, praying, uh, a number of things. So it's not just us and our own devices so to speak uh, there are a lot of other you know aids and encouragement and uh, uh things that we can use to avoid sin um for starters which is a good thing don't open those doors <laughs> don't start those lusts uh as well as if we're into it to try to start starving it out uh, and developing you know replacing bad habits with good habits brian that, that's yeah, kind of so all i i had to you know throw into the mix as well yeah, the good news is the Bible gives us a formula that works, and uh, we're, we're very grateful for that. The Okay, so the next question for you, Jeff, comes from Lorenzo, and he just asked, what is the meaning of Christ's death? Kind of a, a loaded question in a way, because uh, it's kind of a multifaceted answer, isn't it? 
Well, it is. And so where I tend to start with some questions, you know, and honestly, often we don't know the background behind the question. We don't know why the person's asking the question. We don't know if they have any sort of special meaning attached to words, et cetera. Um, and so sometimes I start kind of simple. You know, for instance, in this case, you know, Christ's death, you know, literally and very simply, you know, that is a reference to the death by crucifixion of a person, an actual historical person by the name of Jesus, you know, from the town of Nazareth, you know, outside of Jerusalem in the first century AD. You know, a very simple kind of answer. Uh, but very rapidly, you go beyond the simple answer to what can be viewed as a pretty deep answer. You know, spiritually speaking, you know, the death of Jesus on the cross represents basically an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that, that gets to be a real deep concept. Um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit through the, the writer of Hebrews, you know, repeatedly addresses this concept of Jesus's death on the cross as being a sacrifice, which is, you know, kind of an allusion back to, you know, Old Testament sacrifices. Um, you know, for instance, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 1 through 7. Hey, hey, Brian, why don't you go ahead and read that for our listeners? Sure. Uh, here it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And of course, if you look at that context and a lot of the surrounding uh, passages, you realize that this body is the body that Jesus came into this world, you know, to inhabit, uh, that he, you know, offered up himself, you know, on the cross again as, as a sacrifice, you know, again, similar to the Old Testament sacrifices that were commanded, but ultimately inadequate to forgive sin. You know, how could killing an animal somehow have any effect on one's spiritual status with with God. Uh, we also note that that same passage of Hebrews 10, you know, goes on to talk about Jesus' sacrifice of himself was so perfect, so complete, so comprehensive that as a one-time act, it uh, enabled God to be both just and righteous and to forgive us of our sins once we you know comply with his requirements now, hebrews chapter 10 goes on to say beginning of verse 10 by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all and then he goes back to the old testament for every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man again jesus after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of god from that time, waiting until his enemies are made 
his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So Brian, what we see in Hebrews and a lot of other passages as well, that this is in some ways the core, the very center of the heart of what is often called the gospel. Um, we see you know, Romans chapter one, verses 16 through 18. Uh, Paul, through the Spirit, writing, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And, you know, the Holy Spirit through Paul goes on in chapter three, uh, talks about, you know, the the status of sin, if you will, uh, beginning of verse 27. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Now, now notice this, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in contrast, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, there's a big word, propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, when this was being written, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Of course, that concept of propitiation is, is you know, again, big term. Uh, basically, it relates to an appeasing or an expiating, you know, having placated uh, our, our means of uh, appeasing someone. Now, that that in and of itself is, Brian, a real interesting concept because it, I believe, and I could be mistaken on this, but I believe Christianity is unique among world religions because of this concept, this concept of not only of sin, but this concept of propitiation or atoning sacrifice. I mean, you know, for example, you know, Buddhism, you know, very uh, popular uh, world religion, you know, they do not acknowledge a supreme God or a supreme deity or deities. I mean, they instead focus on achieving one's own personal enlightenment, a state of inner peace or wisdom. And of course, when followers of Buddhism allegedly reach this spiritual height, you know, they're said to have experienced, quote unquote, nirvana, you know, not a concept of sin per se. Now you go on into Hinduism, which again, very popular world religion, you know, uh, they believe in reincarnation. They believe in karma. They believe that a life of devotion and honor is a path to salvation and enlightenment, not necessarily an appeasing of the gods. Um, Islam. I mean, Islam acknowledges the fact that there is sin, uh, and it is. But in, in their world, at least based on what I found on the internet, uh, Muslims believe that God weighs an individual's good deeds against their bad deeds, like on a balance scale, on the day of judgment, punishes those individuals whose evil deeds outweigh their good deeds. So it's kind of like back on the individual again. Um, yeah, under uh, Judaism, which we read in the Old Testament, you know, they view, you know, based on the law given to Moses, you know, the need to offer animal sacrifices for sin, right? Uh, ancient Mayans and Aztecs, you know, they offered sacrifices as well, human 
sacrifices to appease their gods. But bottom line, though, only in Christianity does it appear that the deity or the God, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, in this case, sacrifice himself for the people. And I think that's, that, I believe that, again, that's entirely unique across all the world of religions. Normally, it's like, well, you have to offer up an animal, or you offer up another human being, or you don't have to offer up anything, or you just have to be good, whatever. But Christianity, again, is unique, where the deity sacrifices himself for the people. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, on this particular topic, for more uh, information, look under uh, C for Cross of Christ and B for Blood of Jesus. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, so what we paired uh, this question with a similar question, so I'll ask this uh, to you as well, Jeff. Sure. When we think about this previous question, you know, what is the meaning and purpose of Christ's death? Uh, we had a question from Elise, and she asked, what was Jesus trying to say when he said in John 10, 10, this is according to the New Living Translation, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. She says, I don't understand what he is trying to tell me in that verse. I have read that chapter and verse many times and prayed about it, but I still don't understand. Can you explain to me what he was trying to say? So kind of another purpose here, Jeff, right, that he lists, and that is to give us, right, overall a rich and satisfying life. Right. And in that particular case, I tended to focus more on the who the thief was as opposed to who Jesus was. And, you know, certainly we, we could talk to some degree about um, Jesus and, you know, submitting to him in humble obedience and living out our lives in such a way as we're pleasing to God and, you know, uh, go to, you know, uh, heaven on the judgment day. You know, we could talk to some degree about how living the life of a Christian, you know, gives us in many ways a better life now in the present. But yeah, I kind of spun it a little bit differently and looked at the the, the thief and who the thief was. Uh, and again, here was a case where context, you know, gives us a whole lot of help. And if you look at the context of, of John 10, particularly even starting back in chapter 9, uh, we see where Jesus uh, healed a man that was, if I remember correctly, born blind. You know, that provoked a confrontation between the blind man and the self-righteous Pharisees. Uh, chapter 9, verses 39 through 41 points out that hypocrisy. And then Jesus continues on into chapter 10. He starts drawing this parallel with sheep, uh, a sheep fold, which if our listeners are not familiar with, is somewhat of an enclosure, you know, for keeping sheep together, perhaps overnight, you know, protected from predators, etc. Uh, those legitimate shepherds who would walk up to the opening of the enclosure or the doorway of the enclosure or the gate, if you will, um, to, you know, gather their sheep, you know, out of the enclosure you know, via some guarded front entrance because the passage talks about the doorkeeper uh, versus those who would try to sneak around, maybe enter the enclosure some other way to steal the sheep, you know, steal the sheep that are not theirs. Anyway. And in this particular case, I suspect the reference to thieves uh, likely is to the Pharisees who were, quote unquote, false shepherds who were trying to steal away the people uh, spiritually, so to speak, you know, from following uh, God. And certainly we see that back easily in chapter nine in the previous chapter. And all of that kind of wraps around the, the concept of uh, Jesus being the good shepherd in contrast to 
people who would lie and cheat uh, and, and deceive you and pull you into a false religion or try to persuade, dissuade you from following God at all, etc. Jesus, in contrast, is the good shepherd who wants only what's best for his sheep, for his followers. You know, we see that even further on in uh, uh, chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And again, come back, coming back to that atoning sacrifice. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I, and this is in contrast, Jesus speaking, of course, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I have known by my own as the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, again, uh, as part of that atoning sacrifice. And in this picker case, I would uh, suggest our listeners go over to the biblequestions.org website, look under topics with the letter F for faith, which happens to have an article called The Lord is My Shepherd, which kind of uh, further expands on this uh, concept with Jesus being our good shepherd. All right. Yeah. So good information there. And I appreciate you focusing on this contrast because as you pointed out, you know, there is a difference between the good shepherd, the genuine shepherd who cares for every one of his sheep and those that would be trying to take advantage as we see today. And, uh, and so in that sense, right, Jesus wants us to have a fulfilling life. And he at least illustrates this in part by showing that everything he has done and continues to do is for our own good. And certainly him being the living way, the living truth, uh, someone who cares about even the least of somebody who might fall away or in the, you know, the analogy of a sheep get lost, right? Jesus wants to restore. So anyhow, uh, good thoughts in that area. Yep. So that brings us to our next question, Brian. And this one, and this is like, you know, a change of gears. Um, David writes in, after studying about the Bible and about the Holy Spirit, his question is, after a Christian dies, what happens to your spirit? Does it go to someone else? And that is a, is an interesting concept, but I think it's it's part of a broader question. I think Brian that basically says, you know, after we die, then what? You know, the, the quote unquote afterlife. You know what what goes on? <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in a broader sense. And so, you want to take a take a pass at that one. Yeah, it is definitely kind of mysterious, isn't it? And, and uh, no doubt, you know, there would be some that would say, well, once we're dead, you know, we're, we're like a dog or what is that old saying? Like Rover, we're dead all over and that's it. It's all it's all through. And, and certainly the Bible teaches us differently. And so, you know, the short answer to the question is that our spirit returns to God. And we know that based on passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verses six and seven. You want to read that one for us, Jeff? Sure. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well, basically referring to death. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Yeah, I like how Solomon here used these <laughs> these terms, you know, the golden very, bowl. Yeah, very poetic. <laughs> It is definitely poetic. And, and yes, it's definitely talking about death. And as you read, you know, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, uh, we, as you pointed out earlier, Jeff, we don't always necessarily know why people are asking what they ask. But we do know 
uh, that there are many who believe in reincarnation and uh, whether or not, you know, this was what David was thinking about or, you know, just like you mentioned, kind of asking in general. Uh, when you think about reincarnation, it's kind of known as a rebirth or some might say a transmigration, uh, which is this belief that our spirits, you know, so this is kind of our non-physical essence of a living being, the spirit that God gave us. Um, you know, the, this is a belief that that our spirit begins a new life in a div different physical form or body after physical death. So for some people, that's, you know, us going into another person or an animal or coming back as something else. Um, and this is really a common belief in, in the Indian religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, etc. And uh, so anyhow, well, what does the Bible say? Well, I think one of the best areas for us to look at is in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And just we'll give that to our listeners to take a look at on your own. But what you'll notice when you read that section is that the Bible teaches us that when we die, our souls go to Hades. And in this particular section, Luke 16, 19 through 31, Jesus talks about, you know, a rich man and someone named Lazarus. And what we also learn in this section is that, you know, Hades is the realm of the dead. And certainly would appear from the scriptures that we will all go there when we die unless the Lord returns before we die. Uh, we see also that it contains Abraham's bosom or paradise, as Jesus re refers to it when he's on the cross, and then torment. So you kind of have two sections here, you know, Abraham's bosom and torments. And, you know, when you read this story, you'll see that this rich man was very selfish. He wouldn't help this beggar, Lazarus, at all. And so as a result, when they both died, the rich man went to torments. And, the, and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom or paradise. And uh, we see in Luke 16 and verse 23 within that section, it says, And being in torments, speaking about the rich man, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So this is really all we're told. But a couple of things that you know, we can certainly conclude here. One is that he was still alive and he was still conscious. Uh, he recognized Abraham. He recognized Lazarus. In fact, he was in so much pain that he asked Abraham if Lazarus could, you know, come and just dip his finger in water and just give him some relief. He also asked about going back and warning his brothers uh, because he didn't want them to be where he was at. So, you know, other than what we're told here, we're not really told much more, but this is pretty powerful in that it just teaches us that there is a consciousness after death, that there's a holding place for our soul until the judgment and so ultimately, you know, we just want to ask, well, where will we go when we die? Uh, will we be going to this torments or will we be going to paradise? And so we have passages like Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, where it makes it very clear. It says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So, you know, we also should conclude that once we die, our destiny is fixed and it cannot be changed. And I bring that up because there's also false doctrines out there. For instance, the Mormons teaching that you can be baptized for the dead and the Catholics teaching that there's, you know, purgatory and, you know, you, you go for, you can go and temporarily suffer until you've paid your penance for these more minor sins. And then you can go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. It just says it's appointed for man to die once. And then after that's the judgment. So your destiny's fixed. You'll either go to paradise or torments. And uh, ultimately, 
the spirit returns to God, who is the one that gave it to us. So anyhow, any other thoughts on that, Jeff? Well, maybe just a couple. I mean, one is you go to a typical funeral. And for the most part, a lot of people, including Christians, believers, etc., um, assume that the person is in heaven. Um, and I'm not at that point, you know, questioning whether they're good or bad, but the, the default seems to be, well, they've gone straight to God, they've gone straight to heaven. They're already so, there, right? <laughs> they're already there, right? Um, but as Luke 16 points out, no, there's an intermediate kind of holding place, uh, if you will, um, it, that gives us some, you know, tantalizing insight, but probably leaves a lot of questions unanswered. In fact, I've been interacting with a guy on the internet who seems to be somewhat fascinated, you know, by the account in Luke 16. And he's, you know, he's asked all kinds of questions like, well, you know, is there water there? Can we, can they have beverages? You know, can they walk around? Can they, you know, how far apart is the gap? You know, it's just all kinds of curiosity questions that the Bible doesn't give insight into. Um, so one is the, you know, going straight to heaven versus this intermediate place from which people will be on the day of judgment reunited or into a resurrection body and then be, you know, you know, raised up and then face the quote unquote final judgment. The other thing I, I might add is, you know, when referring to Hades, you know, for at least a Greek speaking audience, you know, that, that's a very clearly established concept, you know, Hades, the Hadean realm, you know, there is life after death. Uh, and like I was saying, you know, some people may, get all wrapped around the axle about the details. But at the same time, they may lose sight. The key point you were making, once we die, it's over, right? You know, our, our quote unquote destiny is fixed. So instead of being less enamored with all these different nuances about the afterlife and whether people can do X or Y or Z, uh, the key point is we need to live our lives now in harmony with God's will such that we don't you know, need to worry about all those nuances you know, of the afterlife. Just know, yes, there is an afterlife, and yes, we will be you know, rewarded or punished according to our deeds you know, in this life. Yeah, very, very good points. And, and something to be, it's very sobering, but I also find it's encouraging, right? Because we you know, are promised a just judgment. And uh, so, okay, well, let's uh, look at the next question, which is for you from Sherry. And Sherry asks, what does it really mean to be a friend of the world according to James 4, 4? Right. And so in some ways, this kind of tees in or ties into our previous question about, you know, how to live faithfully. Well, and, and this is a good question. So James 4, uh, at least the um, context, if you will. And again, we often say, hey, one of the more important Bible study aids, if you have a question about a verse, Look at the surrounding verses, right? Look at the context. Uh, Brian, do you want to go ahead and read uh, James chapter 4? And let's back up to maybe starting with verse 1. Uh, yes, here it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we'll see several things from this context, but one of the first points I want to make, and it's, it's, it's a very sad point. James is addressing Christians. He's not addressing people in the world. He's addressing Christians. And yet these quote-unquote Christians <laughs> um, are certainly not doing what they need to be doing to be pleasing to God. So in the context, this being a friend with the world uh, includes desires for worldly pleasures, lust, coveting, you know, living a quote-unquote worldly life in that kind of a, a moral sense. Uh, so that's at least part of it. Um, we also see some other aspects, uh, for example, in John chapter 15, uh, verses 19 and verses 23, where Jesus referring to his, uh, talking to his disciples, if you were of the world, worldly, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Uh, he who hates me hates my father also. So there, there's also a sense of, you know, being not physically in the world, but, you know, tied with the world, worldly ways, etc. And that when, you know, Jesus comes along, you know, preaching the truth, that if you're worldly minded, no, you're not going to want that, not want that at all. But if you are, you know, genuine, honest, and sincere, and willing to, you know, comply uh, with what Jesus is is asking, that you know you'll love him, but the rest of the world will probably hate you. Right? Uh, John chapter seventeen, verse fourteen. Uh, Jesus now uh, in prayer to the Father says, "I have given them your word, and the world has hated them." because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Uh, and even more to the point in First uh, John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, let me kind of quickly, you know, add, you know, we're not talking about, you know, enjoying life in in a qualified sense, enjoying the sunrise and the sunset or a nice meal or, you know, having, you know, uh, friendly relationships with people. You know, we're not talking about that. We're going, you know, above and beyond that with all of the lusts that we shouldn't have, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, greed, you know, lack of humility, all of that is connected with worldliness in this context. Uh, for additional information, would certainly refer our readers back to our website under the letter W for worldliness, as well as C for Christian living. Yeah, you know, it's not uncommon if you think about it, especially for those who are recently converted to try and maintain, you know, worldly qualities or you know, what we were talking about works of the flesh. And, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to put some of those things off. And so the mistake people can make, and, and there's certainly a great danger in, you know, trying to straddle both sides of the fence, so to speak, right? So well, I can still kind of go out with my friends and do some of these things and, 
you know, I just won't participate at the level that I used to. What the Bible is saying is there, there has to be a distinct contrast that we understand and strive to achieve. And so we literally have to put all of those things off. And as you touched on, Jeff, that might be severing friendships, which can be very difficult. But certainly if our goal is to get to heaven, to be pleasing to God, we have to make that transition. And we have to be very careful about trying to, I don't know if I want to say maintain or dip our toe back in to some of these worldly things, because in essence, it can pull us away from God completely if we're not careful. Well, you know, and that's a good point, because, you know, not only can uh, friends try to drag us back, you know, friends, co-workers, family members, sometimes even neighbors, you know, evil companions, corrupt, good morals, you know, might want to drag us back. But, you know, sometimes it's connection back to, uh, you know, things in our job that, as we learn, are wrong, right? Or hobbies that we learn are wrong. Or uh, entertainment, uh, TV, uh, music that we've been listening to are, are, are you know, ungodly, uh, worldly, you know, wicked, etc. And sometimes those things, you know, have, have sunk their hooks into us and they want to almost like drag us back, so to speak. Um, and we need to be, you know, mindful of those things. Again, you know, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Um, and, you know, do what we can with God's grace, prayer, encouragement from fellow Christians, you know, break those old habits, so to speak, and reinstitute, you know, new, better, uh, godly habits. So, Brian, I think that probably takes us to uh, another question, which is uh, totally different. <laughs> and again, just kind of give you a sense of the diversity of questions we get. Now, this one comes from Gregory, and he writes in, Hello, I was w wondering about the anointing with oil. I witnessed this in a church today, and this was... Uh, in March of uh, 2021, he witnesses witnessed it and was intrigued by it. Is this biblical to do today? Is it charismatic? Is it a normal thing to do? A gentleman was getting anointed by proxy today for his nephew who wasn't there. And I thought it was a little strange to do anointing with oil. Okay, Brian, <laughs> how would you start to approach that one? Yeah, this one was very unique. I mean, I think we've all probably heard about anointing with oil, but I have to admit, this is the first time I've heard about the concept of anointing by proxy. <laughs> yeah, that that's, I mean, we've heard of, you know, quote unquote, baptism for the dead. But yeah, this anointing with oil for a proxy was, that one kind of struck me as unusual as well. Yeah, and it just kind of shows you that, you know, when man interjects himself, uh, there's no limits to what they might come up with. And so... One of the things that, that we see is, you know, this practice of anointing with oil was really common in Bible times. And I would guess that's why some do it today. They just read it and say, okay, here's what we should be doing. But if you really look at, you know, when were people anointed with oil, it was really for many different reasons. And I'll just list a couple here. One was it was done for healing. So like in James chapter five and verse 14, it talks about calling for the elders if you're sick and they can pray over you and they can anoint you with oil. And if you look into that, you know, normally they, they might anoint somebody who's sick with olive oil. It was felt like it, you know, could help them heal. Uh, sometimes it was done for cosmetic reasons. So you might remember reading in Matthew chapter 26 on how uh, Mary and Martha had Jesus in their house and there was an alabaster of oil that was poured over Jesus's head and she used her hair to wipe it on his feet. 
Well, that was really for cosmetic reasons, but it was also because it was marking him out as somebody very special and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, also embalming. So we know that, you know, certainly with the Egyptians, um, embalming was very common. The use of oils is very common. Uh, we also see in the Bible that priests and kings were ceremonially anointed as a sign of, uh, you know, an official appointment to office. And so, you know, this was something physical that was done to show everyone that this was a symbol of God's power upon them. And so, for instance, if you look at Aaron and his sons as priests in Exodus chapter 40, this was what was done for them. When you look at the anointing of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1, same thing. Oil was poured over him, and it was basically to show that this was blessed by God. He was now the leader. He was actually the first king of Israel. So this was all under the old law. And, and so therefore, you know, today, because we live under the law of Christ, you know, the New Testament that we see in our Bibles, um, no one is anointed today physically because Jesus is our king and all Christians are priests. So a couple verses that talk about this, First uh, Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, it says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, here talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the final and only king that we have under this new covenant. And then, Jeff, can you read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where it talks about us as Christians? But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So because we are all priests and Jesus is our only king, there's no one that would be anointed nor should be anointed today in any way. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, you see no commands, no examples, and, and nothing that we can infer that would give us the authority to be doing this physically today. So uh, the type of uh, anointing that Gregory witnessed uh, is really an invention of men, and it's just not supported in Scripture. Well, and I think this particular question is kind of illustrative of people who go to the Bible, uh, sometimes New Testament, sometimes Old Testament, will read about a practice and kind of make an assumption that we need to do the same thing today. Um, I mean, you can go into the Old Testament and you can read about incense, uh, for example, you know, the burning of fragrant incense. Um, you can read to some degree about a separate priesthood, you know, under the Old Testament, uh, worshiping on the Sabbath. I mean, uh, number, you know, unclean foods, you know, a number of different things. And people, you know, tend to assume, well, okay, I guess we must do that today. Uh, but a couple of different things. One is they may not realize the difference between what's called for under the Old Testament, uh, the law of Moses, you know, given by God to the Jews, versus New Testament, what's given to Christians. That's one area. Uh, more to the point for this particular question, what they may not realize is there's a lot of things, even in the New Testament, uh, that was discussed, in some cases even commanded, for the early Christians, that is not applicable today. And, and some people may hear that and go, well, wait a minute, Jeff, what are you really saying here? Well, for sure in the area of the miraculous, uh, supernatural, healing, speaking in tongues, gifts of the Spirit, and other related kinds of things, uh, we certainly see that as, as a normal sort of thing within the first century. But we have passages like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 
that indicates that was a temporary kind of thing. And so there, there's a, a case where, you know, in general, we talk about, you know, obeying God, obeying the New Testament, being a faithful Christian, doing everything that God's commands us to do through the New Testament. Well, there's a case where the New Testament says, oh, by the way, here's a section that's going to phase out, uh, again, First Corinthians chapter 13, uh, for our audience to dig into if they want to. And so some of this, you know, modern tongue speaking, the Pentecostals, Charismatics, uh, et cetera, uh, would start to be uh, questioned, again, because of what First uh, Corinthians 13 has to say, again, within the context of spiritual gifts and their limited use, special purpose, et cetera. Yeah, that's an important point. I appreciate you making that because even in the Gospels, you know, when you look at Jesus, Jesus was following the old law while he was on this earth because the the new law didn't come into existence until he died on the cross. So to your point, it's so critical to understand that even when you're reading the New Testament, you have to make a distinction between what was being practiced as part of the old covenant and what was put into place when Jesus died on the cross and brought about his new covenant. Many of those old things, well, in fact, all of them, right, were done away because he fulfilled that law. Right. Now, one, one quick thing, and, and, you know, in all fairness, there is a passage in James chapter f- 5 um, that says, and this is verse 14, if anyone, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, it goes on to talk about uh, the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, confess your sins one to another, etc. cetera. Uh, and some people might point to that and say, aha, see, well, there you go. That's our authorization for you know anointing with oil today. Um, but again, you know, consider the context and consider some of the New Testament, you know, teaching again, back to 1 Corinthians 13, that if, if this indeed was a miraculous kind of thing, well, that's kind of behind us. Uh, if it was a medicinal kind of thing, okay. I mean, if we want to talk about, you know, anointing with oil or medicine, whatever, you know, medicinally, okay, we could talk about that. But the question that we got from the website certainly didn't seem to be that at all. It definitely seemed to be more of a miraculous, charismatic kind of thing. Anyway, Brian, just thought I'd throw that in before we move Yeah, on. and it's good because, it, yeah, he, you know, certainly using oil to anoint or appoint a leader. And that's by proxy on top of all that, right? So that's yeah, definitely that not a unusual. practice we see under the law. Of right. Uh, okay, so our next question comes from Nayuma. The question is, what is the Bible's position on the death penalty? Yeah. One one question that we do get, probably not frequently, but it's it's one of the more common ones that people wonder about, right? Uh, we do, um, and again, it illustrates the diversity. Uh, and what's interesting is some people will go to the Bible and will say the Bible prohibits death penalty, and others will go to the Bible and say the Bible authorizes the death penalty. So they both can't be right. Uh, so. Go back to the Bible. So certainly in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 5 and 6, we see the beginnings of a general principle that those who shed innocent blood, uh, we would call that murder, should be punished for their crime by being put to death. So that's Genesis chapter 9. That principle was restated essentially under the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, uh, Exodus 21, verse 12 and was expanded to include a variety of crimes under the theocracy uh, of the Jewish nation. Uh, you can read about you know, some of those in uh, Leviticus chapter 20, 
uh, Exodus chapter 21. Uh, we also interestingly see that God used the Jewish nation to punish the inhabitants of the land of Canaan for their iniquity. Uh, that includes, you know, Genesis 15, verse 16, and Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. Now, so let me pause there for a moment, because embedded within the Ten Commandments given you know, by God to the Jews is the command, thou shalt not kill. And yet God commanded them to kill. Well, okay, wait a minute. There's, there's this something, there's more to it than that, right? So we must understand that the command from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, must be understood within this broader context. So we have to understand that as thou shalt not murder, right? That even under the law of Moses, there were commands under certain circumstances for them to take the life. Okay, we might call it capital punishment, or we might call it the death penalty, um, even in light of the command in the Ten Commandments of, you know, thou shalt not kill or in essence, thou shalt not murder. I think some some of the more modern translations may actually explicitly say thou shalt not murder. Now, that's all, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Old Testament, Law of Moses, etc. What about Christians? And what about the New Testament? And that's a legitimate question. Um, what we see is if we go over to Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 17, we understand a, a, an important principle that individual Christians are not to, quote unquote, take matters into their own hands. They're not to seek personal revenge. You know, they're to love their enemies and et cetera. But it doesn't end there. If you continue on reading Romans on into verse thir uh, chapter 13, we see that the government is allowed, encouraged, Required. I'm not, you know, I don't know if we draw the line. It is a legitimate, let's just say, a legitimate function of civil government, governments of men, to punish evildoers via, quote unquote, the sword, which is an uh, explicit reference to execution. You know, the sword, you know, you don't take the sword and spank somebody, you know, with it. Um, that, is, that is one of the God given role of civil government. Now, certainly, can that be abused? Yes. Can be unjustly applied? Yes, but is it morally wrong to say the death penalty is, you know, is the death penalty inherently morally wrong? No, that it is a legitimate tool of government. Uh, for further information at our website, uh, we can look under the uh, letter D uh, for the topic of death penalty. Brian, any other thoughts? Uh, no, other than to say, yeah, you're right. In that section, there's a good article in there about the truth about capital punishment and uh, certainly, you know, something that we should dig into because the narrative that's often given, at least here in the United States, you know, there are so many states that have abolished a death penalty out of reasons of cruelty and, like you said, immoral. Uh, but yet the Bible's pretty clear about what God thinks about it. So I encourage everybody to look into that as well. Right. And, and the other thing I'll just make briefly as we wrap up that question. It's a very consistent thing. You know, Genesis 9, before the law of Moses, we see within the law of Moses, we see within the New Testament. It's a very common thing that, that part of justice is roughly an equivalent payment for an equivalent crime. You know, if I steal your goat, you know, I need to give you your goat back or, you know, equivalent restitution, right? 
yeah, if I steal your life, well, justice would say I would forfeit my own. And as you said, in today's society, a lot of people, you know, view that as immoral. That's just wrong. The government should not have the ability of executing evildoers. But that's not what the scriptures have to say. And again, it does come down to, again, a sense of justice. In fact, I think, and I can't remember the passage in the Old Testament, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, you harm somebody, you know, justice would say, well, you need to have an equivalent, roughly, you know, penalty, price, restitution, whatever the case might be, uh, to include this life for life kind of thing. But, you know, within our modern society, as you're saying, socially, that has become uh, taboo, you know, to, to think that evildoers need to be punished because they have, you know, murdered other people by forfeiting their own life, including, you know, mass murders and mass shootings and, you know, you, you name it, serial killers. Uh, certainly we have that uh, modern social um, controversy, if you will. All right, Jeff. So that wraps part one. We're going to have a part two as well. We have a nice variety of questions and we would just like to continue to share with our listeners. Once again, some recent questions that have been submitted and, and more importantly, what does the Bible say about this? So this will wrap part one. And for part two, uh, we're going to take a look at some questions like, you know, when I have faith, why should I take medicines to cure me of my disease? Uh, we're also going to answer the question about, you know, based on uh, our situation today, um, you know, how can the Bible inspire and strengthen the hope of people uh, to look forward to, they say, new heavens and a new earth? Uh, and then we'll also consider a few other questions uh, along this line. So we encourage you to come back and listen to part two. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at BibleQuestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.